Hello, today's guest on Hillbury Island Castaway is Wirral Wave's very own Kemal Horton, who co-presents Poetry Roundup. The talented poet also hosts the Poet Show on Vintage Radio every other Wednesday and is chairman of the Chester Poets. Kemmel also runs regular poetry events, including First Thursday at Lingham's in Heswell and poetry workshops across the Wirral. After retiring from his role as a social worker at Wirral Borough Council, Kemmel became chairman of the Board of Trustees at Wirral Independent Living and Learning, which helps the elderly and the disabled. Kemmel, welcome to the show. Hello, and uh, good to be here. <laughs> now then, it's fair to say that you're a bit of a poetry lover, aren't you? Yes, mm. yes. You do yes, like I a bit have. of poetry. I do, I've been doing it for a long time now. Yeah. Where did your love of poetry start? Um, interesting, because I probably started writing poetry mm, about a few weeks after I left school. So it wasn't to do with school or any of that, it was to do with trying to write songs and then realising that I couldn't actually play anything, mm. which is a bit of a handicap when it comes to writing songs. <laughs> and um, then I heard some of Mark Boland's stuff, and he'd do basically children's stories and stuff like that on, on the old Tyrannosaurus Rex albums. I thought, I could do that. Do you know the way 16-year-olds think they can do anything? Well, you can at 16. You, you can. can do anything, can't you? Almost. Yeah. So I, but that's probably what set me off. And then I picked up bits and pieces as I've gone along and got further and further into it. Now, you know, four years further on and here I am. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, so which poets um, inspire you? Lots of different people and... I spend a lot of time listening to poets at around, I'd say, our sort of level. By that, I mean people that aren't widely published, that maybe have uh, a small pamphlet out. or And so I'm presenting poets in that way. You get to like people that maybe aren't all that, you know, at the top notch. I mean, there's obviously Simon Armitage and... I remember when Simon Armitage used to have to go out and work for his living. Mm. Uh, he was a probation officer when I first heard him reading, and now he's Poet Laureate. Yes. And uh, absolutely delighted with the way his career's gone, mm. because I think he's earned it. He's managed to retain that um, humanity in his poetry. Yes. And I think that's a, an important thing. Um, authenticity and humanity, I think, are two core things that should be in poetry and you can get a lot of poetry which is technically very good but lacks that and it feels cold. Now bearing that in mind your first choice is is interesting I'm not surprised it's on your (laughs) list would you like to introduce your first song? My first song is Bob Dylan I thought I'd pick a a hit one of his hits that isn't widely known uh, nowadays and it came out in 1971 Um, it got to about number 12 in the charts and it was the first Bob Dylan record in the charts that I was really aware of because I was about 15, 16 when it came out and I was very excited to hear uh, Watching the River Flow. What's the matter with me? I don't have much to say Daylight sneaking through the window and I'm still in this old night cafe. 
floor beneath the moon Out to where the trucks are rolling slow Sit down on this bank of sand And watch the river flow Wish I was back in the city Instead of this old bank of sand With the sun beating down over the chimney tops And the one I love so close at hand If I had wings and I could fly I know where I would go But right now I just sit here so contentedly And watch the river flow People disagreeing on just about everything, yeah Makes you stop and wonder why Why only yesterday I saw somebody on the street Who just couldn't help but cry Oh, but this old river keeps on rolling though No matter what gets in the way and which way the wind does blow And as long as it does, I just sit here and watch the river flow How do you feel when you hear that song? Oh, it uh, well, it takes me back to uh, those early days of uh, getting into Bob Dylan and getting loads of second-hand LPs those days. Now yeah. it's charity shops and second-hand CDs, but um, <laughs> loads of second-hand LPs. And uh, but I like that particular track because it does get you want you, know, you want to move to it. Um, it's a good party track. He's got. Dylan's got quite a lot of good songs that you can dance to as well as listen to. And the other thing about that is it's about removing yourself from the city and getting out somewhere and withdrawing a bit, which I think Dylan... Well, at that time, he was quite withdrawn from uh, the whole music business. And that's why I think it came out just as a single. 
The B-side was Spanish's The Loving Tongue, which has occurred on one or two collections. But that particular track, as far as I'm aware, is only available on The Greatest Hits Volume 2. Um, never went on an LP or anything. So uh, it's quite rare in a peculiar way. Yeah. Yeah. Now, you've seen the great man play, haven't you? I've seen him a couple of times. I saw him in Hyde Park some years back. Uh, he was so far away, I was looking... Uh, they didn't have screens up those days. And uh, he wandered onto stage with... They were all dressed in denim. And I was like, Who is, who's coming on now? Oh, it's men dressed in blue. And then it wasn't until he started playing that you realised who was... Well, and he was with Ronnie Wood and... Um, a few other notables in the band, and it was the Prince's Trust concert in Hyde Park. And then I saw him a couple of years ago at uh, in Liverpool. A much more, uh, much different. Again, no screens up, so you couldn't see who it was. And we were right at the back. But um, he he was good, and he did some of the hits. He did he did Desolation Row, which I didn't expect, because that's a, a very long track. It's about twelve minutes long. And it was an interesting version of it, too, with the band he's got now, which is much more like a, a 1930s um, kind of saloon, which was the look that they had. It was The stage looked like it was lit by gas lamps, which didn't help when you were that far back because you just couldn't see it. <laughs> Do you think maybe he doesn't want to be seen on stage? I think that's it. I think he likes to be that... Well, he's, he's got to talk because he owes so much money to all these people he's married in the past. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and I think that perhaps and that's his life is touring, isn't it's it? It's keeping women. Oh uh, God. So, but I think there's also a bit of him where he feels it's all a bit intrusive. So it's that, and that goes into that song from all those years ago. Um, all these calls upon him to go and do things, but I guess I'll just sit here and watch the river flow. Yeah, absolutely. Kem, I want to ask you about your name. Yes. Its origins. It's, it's not very Wirral, is it? You're a Bevington no, boy. There you, aren't many camels you around. me, which you assure me you have. I have. I've been stalking you for and, some uh, time. There's only me. <laughs> I am the only Kemmel Horton. Isn't that fantastic? I think it is. It's, um, I, it's, I blame my mother. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what happened was uh, my Auntie Dorothy lived in London in... Uh, her next-door neighbour was Turkish. And his wife, who was Irish, so a good old mix there, was um, pregnant at the same time as my mum. And I think I'm right in saying she had preeclampsia and a stroke and lost the baby. Oh. And so here I am. Ah. They named me after Camel to... Uh, as a kind of a, what is it when you do that? But that's, well, what, that's where the name came from. And well, it's a, it's a tribute, isn't it? Yes, that's what it and, is. And uh, yes, so we re, re, re So you're not Turkish at all, then? No, not at all. Right. And we, Camel, uh, my well, Camel became my uncle Camel, but we became Camel as I got older and he was older. So we'd send cards to uh, to Camel. Merry Christmas, lots of love, Camel. <laughs> <laughs> It's kind of a nice symmetry, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> right, Kemp, would you like to introduce your next track? The next track is, hang on, I'll have a look here. The next track is, oh, Toots and the Maytels. And it's um, 54, 42, That's My Number. 
And if this don't get you up and bopping, nothing will. You were practically up there dancing, Kev. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I don't need to ask you, you how that made you feel. It, it's a great party record. And, uh, yes, there's a number of people in, in the house and in the family that uh, enjoy a bit of reggae. And uh, 5446 was his, uh, Tutus' number when he was in prison. And I think just to take ah. that and make that song out of it, and it's, well, it's, Two fingers to authority, isn't it? <laughs> in a nice, laid-back in, way. In a, yeah, no one gets like, hurt, it's just nice. Yeah, and I think... That's the other thing about reggae in particular. It's the music of people who are oppressed. And people who are oppressed write the most uplifting music and always have done. You only need to read the Psalms. Well, it's about hope, it's isn't it? about building you up and mm. all that stuff. And... Uh, it's only people who are very comfortable that can be miserable. Mm. The rest of us can't afford to be. <laughs> we wouldn't want to be, no. would we? It's not us, Kem, it's not us. 
Now, you are married to Caroline and you like walking, don't you? We do. You're great walkers. Yes, I've managed to convert Caroline into a walker. Mm-hmm. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Is she pleased about that? Yes. I mean, she's written poems about... One of her poems in particular is um, about how she never used to go into any of these shops where you bought walking coats with hoods and all this. What's all that about? Oh, an anorak, yeah. Yes, mm. that's now... She knows all about different makes of different things. and It was a shock to her friends mm. when they saw the pictures on Facebook of Caroline up mountains in the snow and that kind of thing. She was willing to walk up a mountain in snow for you, Kat. Yes. Our first winter together as a couple, she came up because she was living in Northampton and there was snow and I drove up to the Ponderosa on the Horseshoe Pass and we just got out of the car and went up the mountains. Yeah. Yeah. Up to the tops and uh, took loads of pictures. Oh, it was glorious. Oh, lovely. So when we cast you on Hillbury Island, you're not going to have a problem. You'll just be walking around walk it, around won't you? Around, yes. You've probably yes. been out there a few times already, I would Indeed, imagine. In fact, I've, I've run poetry <laughs> workshops on Hillbury Island. Have you so really? So I could invite people across and we could, we could uh, yes. So your luxury item is going to be an audience of poetry lovers? Yes. Yes, my luxury <laughs> item is an audience. <laughs> And if they can come and bring a bag of chips with them, they'll be even more welcome. So when you're out walking, um, how do you feel when you're out there in the lovely countryside? What does it do? Um, A lot of the time, um, Paul Harris, who uh, is known to your listeners, we we walked the length of Offa's Dyke, which is roughly 190 miles in total. And uh, it took us 12 days. And a lot of the time when you're walking, you're there with your own thoughts. Uh, because you, you can't talk for 12 days. Long. Not even I can manage to talk. Oh, Paul Harris days. can, I can assure you. <laughs> no, he never he, shuts up. Even he ran out after a while. <laughs> so you, you spend a lot of time with your own thoughts, looking at things. Then you come and you start talking to whoever you're with. Mm. And you're pointing things out, especially if you see something interesting. And it's just... Um, a very natural pace that's the thing is again society today we jump in our cars we jump in aeroplanes we're all over the place and everything's timed just slow it all down to the pace that you walk at and everything starts to feel better and you can think if you're running you can't think in the same way if you're walking you can mull things over whatever you want to mull over and why were you walking along Office Dyke? Well, one of the things that, uh, when we, well, initially, because I said to Paul, I've always wanted to walk off as Dyke. And he said, I'll do that. And I've been waiting for over 40 years to find some idiot that would say, <laughs> I'll do that. And um, so we decided we'd do it. Um, once we decided we'd do it, I thought, well, let's do something and make some money while we're doing it. And, you weren't robbing people on the way, were you? Well, it was tempting, <laughs> tempting. But what we did is we got sponsored for um, neuroendocrine cancers. The uh, net, it is, it's, it's a charity. And um, because a few months earlier, I'd lost a, a very close friend to a neuroendocrine cancer, which is a horrible thing because there's not much... Your life expectancy, once you're diagnosed with one, is about three years. And she had exactly three years. Um, and it was it was a great loss. 
and I just wanted to do something for her and for other people that have that. So we, how much did we raise? It was over a thousand pounds, about sixteen hundred pound we raised. Oh, that's great. And which was great because um, yeah, it put a bit back. And uh, yes, yeah, so I'm pleased to have been able to do that. I'm really pleased to have done the walk. And what is your next song for My us, Kev? next song is... Let me have a look here. It's... Oh, it is Bruce Springsteen. Now, my friend uh, that had the cancer, we went to... Um, we, went, we saw Bruce Springsteen. This was on the playlist. Tunnel of Love had come out. It was a Tunnel of Love tour. And um, there was me and Tracy and her sister Jackie and a few other people... And it was at Aston Villa Football Club, which is a rare thing for me to be seen in a football stadium. But <laughs> you're not walks. into the game, are no, you, Cam? No, it was. Um, <laughs> so yes, so this song is. Oh, I'll dedicate it to Tracy. I got a dollar in my pocket There ain't a cloud up above I got a picture in a locket And that says, baby, I love you Well, if you didn't look then, boy Then fellas don't go looking now Well, if she comes a-walking Rural Wave, your local community station with a difference. 
Now, you spent most of your working life as a social worker, didn't you, for Wirral Borough Council? One way or another, not necessarily as a social worker, but I ended up as a social worker after quite a long time. I started well, I started off, I was sitting at home, minding my own business, uh, trying to learn how to smoke a pipe and write a novel. How because, old were you at this point? Oh, in my mid-twenties, about 20... Hang on, I was 24. Gosh, how did you get on with the pipe smoking? Is that something you've oh, I, I, maintained? I, I, I conquered it, then I gave it up. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't smoked anything this century. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so I'm there, minding my own business, sat in the chair by the window, and the phone went, and it was social services. They were um, on to you. They, yes, they said, um, Mr Horton, uh, this is social services transport. Uh, I believe you are available for work. I got the shock of my life. I thought, <laughs> what do you mean available for work? So we'll send a vehicle to pick you up. Well, at that point, what could you do? So Sounds is... like they were employing Mossad agents or something, well, doesn't it? So they sent a vehicle, big yellow <laughs> ambulance. Out. Get on the big yellow ambulance. We drive round the corner. This was what recruitment was like, I would say. We drive round the corner and the person driving the ambulance said, if you knock on that door, there'll be a man behind that door in a wheelchair. Wheel him out and put him on the back. <laughs> that was your training. You hadn't been trained, no health and no, safety, no, how to lift nothing. people, you wheel just, them. No checks, anything. Just, I mean, that was... 1979. Ah, oh, a different time. They were different times indeed. Mm. And that's how I got involved. And then I did about two years or so temping on the ambulances and a bit of uh, care assistance, just basically on on what we now refer to as the bank, mm. um, doing all sorts. And then I discovered, of all the client groups that I worked with, I liked working with people with learning disabilities. Because if you say to somebody... Um, say an older person that your name is Camel they go okay Kevin well we'll see you later (laughs) Um, you say to somebody with a learning disability your name is Camel and they go Camel right and they get it straight away it's weird I don't know why that happens they don't question it and so that was always a bit of a hit with me and um, I found that I actually got on with people quite well and then there was a vacancy in one of... Oh, there were homes then for people with learning disabilities. So I started off as a care assistant. Then I became a deputy. And then I went into a day centre for people with... Learning, well, Morton Day Centre in particular. Mm. And I worked there from 1990 to 2000. Became part of the management team there. And then I went back into the same home that I'd worked in earlier as the acting officer in charge with the task of moving these 23 people from one home to another building. And it was a temporary fix because we knew that the other building we were moving them to, although it was better, it was bigger, it still wouldn't meet the specifications. The room sizes weren't big enough. But we did that, and that was 18 months 18 months of hell. <laughs> it was because te- you had to manage the move, yes, as well as manage the staff. We doubled the staff size virtually, so I had all that recruitment to do. It was a at one point, my boss said, 
Kemal, you've got the worst job in the authority. <laughs> and he was just glad it wasn't his job, wasn't well, it? Yes. Mm. But so, what, what did you learn about yourself during that period? Because it does sound extremely stressful. Um, <laughs> I don't know. It was... Yeah, I'm not sure that I did learn very much about myself because it was, it, it was quite difficult all round that bit. When that ended and we, I decided not to go for the job permanently, I then um, worked as a supported living development officer. I think that was my title. And so it was, that was about getting people into supported living mm. and developing... Uh, facilities and liaising with housing associations and care providers to put all this together. Mm. And that lasted for uh, a fair while. Mm. That was a bit more fun because you could do something and you could see... You can see the results immediately, can't you? Yeah. Yeah. Do you miss working? No, because I've got too much to do. Yes, no time for work. And that kind of... um, I'd been retired for about six months when I got a phone call. Yeah, it's all about phone calls with know, you, isn't it? Well, you, but you weren't smoking your pipe, were you? What no, were you I'd doing? well given up the pipe by yeah. then. The pipe had gone. <laughs> Moved on to hard drugs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was contemplating. In fact, when I, I took early retirement, um, I don't know how or why, but I ended up back in the house that I grew up in. Oh. And I the day I re- finally finished work, I'm sat in the same chair <laughs> by the same window, thinking, "Well, that was thirty years gone. Now what?" <laughs> <laughs> Only no pipe that mm. time. And uh, what I intended to do was spend more time with the poetry and performance generally, and see what happened. And as I got a phone call from somebody I'd worked well, who'd been a volunteer at Morton Centre, and I'd managed the volunteers at Morton Centre, and she was involved with Whittle Independent Living and Learning. She was one of the people who helped to set it up. So she said, uh, we've left you alone for six months. Now you've had a break. Would you like to come and be on our board? And that's what introduced me to, to them. OK, we're going to have some music now, and then we're going to come back to Wirral, um Independent Living. We'll have a good chat about that. What's your next song? It's David Bowie, and uh, it goes to those back to those times of when everything seemed to be falling apart. And this is I Deserve a Better Future. Demand a better future For I might 
Tell me a bit more about Rural Independent Living and Learning. Well, Rural Independent Living and Learning was set up initially by parents and some supportive professionals because at that time, as I said, there was the provision for people with learning disabilities was go to the day centre and there were homes, you know, care homes, and what they wanted was something a lot more personal that allowed people to develop and do what they wanted to do. So what we do is we provide support for people with learning disabilities and we'll do that for people who are still living with parents and that's our outreach people. And um, we also have um, people living in their own homes that they've rented in... uh, so they have like flats or some shared houses, two or three people living in a house. Um, in fact, it's all the all the provision we've got is I think either one or two people living in a house, and we've got eleven people living in a block of flats, and all of the all the housing is provided by housing associations. So we are not involved in that at all. We have got no vested interest in what happens to the property. And uh, 
We're just there to support the people. So it's about tailoring what you do to the mm. individual's needs. That's exactly it. As opposed so to big organisations yes. saying, well, this is what we do and people need to fit in yeah. with us. So it, it, we put the person is central, it's person-centred working. Um, and Will, when it was set up, led... Well, they were the little lead on that and they had um, workshops and things that they gave to social services so it was that way around and at that time I was still working for social services when they started putting uh, some of the packages together so that people have their own bungalows and houses I was involved in that from from the other side so when I retired it became um, I was kind of an obvious choice for their board really (laughs) and in a sense I've just carried on doing what I used to be paid for. <laughs> and it's, it, it is, it's, I, I chair the organisation now. Um, so I meet with our CEO quite regularly and, uh, and I chair the meetings that we have from the Board of Trustees. The Board of Trustees now comprises, again, a few professionals and a few parents and some people who are both. And uh, it's just really about trying to get a consensus of opinion about what we ought to do about various things. One of the things that we're faced with currently, as all care providers are throughout the country, is we have a minimum wage and we have um, the rate, the hourly rate that the local authority will pay. And the, the two don't really go together. Ah, so um, there's a, short, a shortfall between. There, there is, um, because when you f- first look at it, you might say, well, that's plenty of money, but you've got to train people, you've got to pay for them to be trained, you've got all the backroom stuff, and you've got to pay for the um, for people's holidays and yeah. sickness out of all of that. So how do you fill that gap? Um, it's difficult. We started off wanting to pay people more than... Well, in fact, I don't think the minimum wage would even come out then. But what, the aim was always our support workers should get more than support workers were generally paid. Yes. Now we can't do that. We can only just pay... I think we're about 10p above the minimum wage. Mm. And looking at the current round of um, payments coming out of the council we might not be able to keep that up as the minimum wage goes up. It might, we might end up just paying the minimum wage. Yeah. I don't know how that's going to fall. Yeah, that must be a worry for you. It is, because we want to employ people who, um, one, we want to give our staff uh, something decent. Yes. And we want to also attract people that are going to be, you know, that are going to want paying. Yeah. Are um, you worried it's going to affect recruitment? It does affect recruitment. There's no two ways about it. Um, there is, I'm not selling it very well. I'm hastened to that. But the, there's always work out there for people to do. I mean, if people want to apply, the, I, I believe we're a good company to work for because we do care about people. And it's, it's a small company in as much as we've got roughly uh, 90 to 100 staff and we support about 60 people Mm. Um, so we're quite small we don't want to be huge that's never been 
on the agenda. We need some growth because if you don't have any growth, the it goes the other way. You, you start to stagnate. Yes. And we need some growth so that there, there are opportunities for staff to develop. So that all goes into... And you get an idea from this that, yes, I, I'm still thinking. And that's why... That's part of my role is to yes. be thinking about how things go and what do we do? Where do we put the balance um, with this thing, with the minimum wage? Mm. Um, of, and what we're faced with by what the authority pay us. But all the care centre, all the, all the care sector are faced with the same problem. Yes. So we're not alone. And um, hopefully some of the bigger contenders may say, hang on, we can't exist on this. You need to give us a bit more money. <laughs> yeah. But again, the local authority are equally tied because they've had... Uh, they get a, a settlement grant each year from the central government and each year since the austerity came in it's been cut back and cut back and cut back. Now this government is now saying that they're not going to do that, they're going to increase the money but by the time that comes through it won't be this year mm. because the settlement grant's already been done for this year, that's already settled. Yes. Um, so by the time that comes right round to us, you're looking at a couple of years' time. Mm. So, uh, yeah, these are all, all the machinations. These are that things go that on. you have to sort out, and you will sort them yeah. out, won't you, Cam? It's, it's, not, it's not me alone, but mm. I'm part of that discussion. I'm, yeah. I'm in there, and I spent our CEO, Dave Large, we spend a lot of time chatting to each other and bouncing stuff about because that's what we, we have to do. That's your job. It's yeah. our job, mm. yes. On that note, what is your next track, My please? next track is um, The Killers, featuring Lou Reed, and this is Tranquilize. And for no other reason than this is just fantastic. This, The combination of Lou Reed and, and The Killers, I just love it. Oh 
So, Lou Reed and uh, the Killers, wonderful stuff. Um, just while we were talking about Will Independent Living and Learning, I found the work and the stuff that I've done, not just for them, but over the 30 years, I have to say, it's been a blast. I've enjoyed... I won't say I've not gone away swearing and muttering at times, <laughs> because I think we all do that. That's the nature of doing anything. Um, but... but it's been a blast. I've enjoyed and I've been able to see um, things that I've achieved. Yes. Which not everybody can. So if that work appeals to anybody listening in and, and they want to have a go, by all means, have a look on the website for Whittle Independent Living and Learning. And we're based in Tower Keys uh, by the Four Bridges. And... Uh, you can get an application form off the website. I say the pay is not great, the hours are antisocial, but it's a good it's a good field to work in. And if you're patient, there are opportunities. And you'll get your rewards from, from you dealing do, with you do. people. I, mean, who... I find lots of people that I mean we've got staff who've worked for us for a very long time since we and we've just come up to our twentieth anniversary. And um there are staff that have been with us all that time, so we can't be that bad. Um, <laughs> you must be doing something right. <laughs> yeah, and uh, that's that's because again the curse sector because the pay isn't that great. The staff turnover, most people have a much greater staff turnover than we do. Mm, but and, you you uh, manage to retain people. Mm, yeah, yeah, and nobody's nobody's there for a profit. No, 
and a lot of the care sector is still having to pay um, the directors and the shareholders. Mm. All the any money we have, and we, we're a registered charity, so we do various fundraising events which help to. Um, swell the coffers a bit so that we can provide some things a bit extra yes. to the people now, we support. Talking about your fundraising, I believe that um, you're quite good playing the role of auctioneer. <laughs> <laughs> Is that right? Yes, and bingo calling and all these other things. Oh, the glamour. Uh, I, I am something of a performer. I've done, In fact, I've been involved in Amdram in the past, and um, it's, which has given me an edge on to how to present and do things so getting up on stage doesn't frighten me in the least um i i have been known to say i don't normally talk to strangers i'm terrible put me in a railway carriage next to somebody <laughs> and i just won't say a word but you film put a, a whole hall full of people so i don't talk to strangers unless there's an orchestra pit in front of me <laughs> um, why do you think that is i mean you would just well i would assume <laughs> that if you were great in front of an audience, that you would be good on, on a one-to-one. That surprises me. Well, I've had to me. think about this. I have had mm. to think about it. What's your theory? It. It's control. Ooh. 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 The Machiavellian bit there. No, it, it's if, you're, if you've got an orchestra pit between you and who you're talking to, you're in charge. You can do it. You Nobody's going to come... Um, and knock you down sort of thing. Unless, unless you really are that very bad. Yeah. <laughs> I say boo. Uh, <laughs> but I think that's what it is. It's, it's that bit, I can feel safe then. It's like if you go and knock on someone's door that you don't know and you've got a clipboard, somehow you're safer with a clipboard than without a clipboard. So you're talking you're about a bit, of a, a bit of a buffer then, aren't you, with the orchestra yes, yes, and with, yes. with your clipboard? I mean, an orchestra yes. with, a, with a clipboard, that mm. would be ideal for you, wouldn't it? Yes. Oh, well, I do that too. <laughs> uh, especially, you know, auctioning things. You're looking down your clipboard going, right, what's the next item? Oh, it's... And I can do all of that. Yeah. But it, it's, yeah, putting me in a, in a room with strangers and networking, I can't do that. Well, that That's... is... Terrible. But I think a lot of people balk at the thought of networking, don't yes. they? Because you, you're putting yourself out there, aren't you? And you're saying to people, please like me. Yes. And it's that fear of somebody might yeah, not like again, me. You, you but... haven't got control. Yeah. And it's it's about, yes, somebody can... It's fear of rejection, isn't it? Fear of rejection. There you go. We don't like that, do uh... we? Now, on that note, let's have some music. Let's have some music. Who have we got now? We have... Ah, uh, we have... Arlo Guthrie and Pete Seeger, and uh, this is, again, quite an old track. I'm picking this, um, this song in particular. There was a TV programme recently about the uh, plane crash that took place um, in the late 60s, and what happened, it was all deportees from America being sent back to South America, and... All they, uh, all they were reported as was deportees. Nobody bothered finding out what their names were. And this one guy went round and investigated, and it took him 30-odd years to name everybody on that plane. So now there's a, a monument. And this song was recorded when um, nobody knew who these people were. And it's an Arlo Guthrie song with backed up by Pete Seeger and 
with the current things that are going on in the States with people being deported, I just thought it was so relevant for today. So here it is, deportees. This next song we're going to sing is an old song, not too old. I sang it on the midnight special on that NBC thing and uh, never got on the air. I never released it. I don't think it was the song itself. Uh, it, was, it was probably the introduction, you know. All I, I, well, before I sang the song, I said, uh, I was talking about little kids, because I got some, and I was saying, uh, must be strange to grow up in, the, in this country and not know what a grape looks like. Doesn't sound too subversive, right? Doesn't mean nothing. Kicked it off the air, though. Crops are all in, the peaches are rotting The oranges are piled in their creosote dung They're flying you back to the Mexico border To pay all your money to wait back again My father's own father, he waited that river they took all the money he made in his life My brothers and sisters come working the fruit trees And they rode the trucks till they took down and died Goodbye to my one, goodbye Rosalita Adios mi amigos, Jesus de Maria You won't have a name when you ride the big airplane And all they will call you will be deportees Now some of us are illegal and others not wanted Our work contracts out and we have to move on 600 miles to the Mexico border They chase us like outlaws, like wrestlers and thieves We died in your hills and we have died on your deserts We've died in your valleys, we've died on your plains We've died in your trees and we've died in your bushes both sides of the river, we've died just the same Goodbye to my one, goodbye Rosalita Adios, mi amigos, Jesus y Maria You won't have a name when you ride the big airplane And all they will call you will be deportees the sky plane caught fire over Los Gatos Canyon Like a fireball of lightning, it shook all our hills And who are these friends, all oh, scattered like dried leaves The radio says they are just deportees Is this the best way we can grow our big orchards? 
This is the best way we can grow our good fruit To fold like dry leaves and rot on your topsoil And be known by no name except deportees Goodbye to my one, goodbye Rosalita Adios mi amigos, Jesus y Maria You won't have a name when you ride the big airplane And all that will call you will be deportees So Ken, what sort of films do you like to watch in your downtime? Oh, all sorts of things really and uh... Yeah, Caroline and I both enjoy going to the cinema. We uh, It's one of the things that we do too, is we live in Bebbington and the cinema is in Bromborough, so we walk there back most of the time. So that gives us a, another three miles on our daily total, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so all, all sorts of things. I mean, the Lord of the Rings trilogy, I enjoyed all of those. Yeah. But I enjoyed the book too, you see. And again... The, Lord of the Rings is one of those books that is, there's poetry in there. And so when I read that at quite an early age, um, that was quite influential. And uh, yes, that whole notion of fighting the darkness, which of course is in Star Wars as well, and what is the nature of that darkness? So both of those things are, are fascinating. So I've just seen the... You know the the latest and last Star Wars film. What did you make of it? I, I want to see the whole lot again now. The hardest thing is trying to work out who was whose son, daughter, who was related to whom, and has it all gone a bit Jeremy Kyle show in your head? No, where you you get these complicated family structures. There, and there, all there, sorts there of is, yeah, there was a bit of that. Going and, on. I want, and because it's taken what forty years. It's it's a bit of a stretch now to try and remember who <laughs> who was who to begin. Well, even when they re-released them, that was getting on for twenty years ago. So it's taken twenty years to pre- to present that story, and I think people can't be expected to know where it began. So I need to watch the whole lot from and again sometime binge watch it, and then it all makes sense. The film itself is good. I mean. Wonderful effects, and they've brought out some wonderful things with the people that from the other um, films and incarnations of it to tie it all up neatly in a nice bow, and there it is. But so it's it's well worth watching if if you like that kind of thing. So bearing in mind your your love of music, how how important is music within the films that you choose to watch? If the music isn't up to par, can it? I like something. Can it affect the? don't like the traditional musicals. I can't get that, can't we? I don't know why. Is it because they're a bit too happy? Maybe, yes. A bit too happy, clappy and all that <laughs> business. Now then, things like Yesterday, that was brilliant. Yes, now that I was, agree with you. And it was so funny. And not only that, but it's... I've written songs. And we've all... I'm sure anybody that's tried to write a song has had that fantasy. What if you could... What if the Beatles had never existed mm. and you know all those songs and you can just do what he did? So it was a, so many people must have, must have been their own personal fantasy and living that out and seeing where it goes. 
and and how he deals with it. So you do that the, the character in conflict there. That that was good too. So again, there's good music in the film. That's good. Mm. And films that tell a story. And in fact, yeah, I've not seen it now for forty years probably. The Soldier Blue uh, was a great film. Oh, tell me about that. The Soldier Blue links to our next piece of music. It's as in if that, we planned that, isn't it, Cam? It's amazing. <laughs> I didn't realise we had. But Soldier Blue was uh, the theme tune was Buffy Saint Marie, who wrote the song Soldier Blue. And most people haven't really heard much from us since then. But I found a CD, mm. um, which, and this is stonking. What she's done since is she's got involved in dance music and all sorts of things you wouldn't expect from this Native American folk singer. And she now is, uh, she's got to be in her 70s now. And this next track is Power in the Blood. And it's uh, stonking. <laughs> and I love, what I like about it is that she's taken Native American rhythms, dance rhythms, plus the messages that she always wanted to put into her music and wrapped it all up. And yeah, good stuff. Medicine, corporation, government, selling me some cover up, weaponizing pesticides, poisoning my groceries, nothing but another drug, a license they can buy and sell. No, I don't mind dying. Driving tanks, 
But old thieves, they drive the banks And you never see a uniform on Wall Street There's power in the blood There is power in the blood There is power in the blood There is power in the blood started podcasting how's that going <laughs> i'm not i'm not too sure to be honest i'm podcasting through a system called anchor fm which a friend of mine told me about he's um which is some had researched his son being 15 knows all about these things and i thought he'll have done a good job on this so it, they must be okay and it's easy enough to do once you use set it up and you take your recording and you put it and it is designed too for radio my, my friend that is using it for his local radio or community radio in McCunfleth and they're putting all these podcasts up about things in McCunfleth so I thought well, I'll use some put some of our old shows on there in the past what I've done for guest poets is I've made them a CD of the programme so it goes on to two CDs because it's a two-hour show. And then they get these things and they don't know what to do with them because they haven't got a CD player nowadays because people have moved on, haven't they, <laughs> apart from me. Um, so it's now occurred to me that the thing to do is if I do the podcast, give them the link to the podcast and then they can share it with whoever and they can listen to it in perpetuity. So uh, that's... <laughs> <laughs> That's the aim. So I've only done one so far, and that was a programme we did to uh, commemorate the life of a friend of ours, Sheila Parry, who was an excellent poet. And uh, the more we've dug into some of her poetry, the more we've appreciated it too, and found out bits and pieces. Because her partner or ex-partner is now in the ta- has the task of emptying the house that they shared together. And so we've given them a bit of a hand with that and come away with boxes of books, uh, <laughs> which um, we will distribute one way or another uh, and keep the poems going, because I think that's a, an important thing. And I think most of us that write poetry, at the end of the day, we want our poetry to say something for years to come, even when we're not on the planet to do it ourselves. We'd like 
we like the idea of it still being there. And uh, so we've done a fair bit to to do that with poets that are no longer with us. I've got an archive of recordings now, and some of the people there are no longer with us, but we can still hear them reading their poems. So that's quite... Uh, it's wonderful, simple. isn't it? Because poetry, it's, it, it's the spoken word, isn't it? And the person who's created it, yes. you want to hear their voice, don't you? Yes. As opposed to some, someone else reading it out. Yes. You want to hear their voice, and that's what your podcasts will do. Yes. Yes, certainly to an extent. So we have... The show that we do is um, a guest poet plus some stuff from the archive plus some stuff that we read and some of our own stuff. So mm-hmm. so that, that's what we be going into the podcasts. Do you prefer to read your own stuff or other people's poetry? Well, I think the performer in me probably prefers to read my own because I know I'll get that right. Um, <laughs> when I'm reading other people's poetry, I sometimes... I like reading other people. This is out loud and live. I like reading other people's poetry, but I'm not never as comfortable with it. But I enjoy doing it. One of the things that we do as well is once a month we go to a old people's home and we read there. So, again, anybody wants to have a go, do get in touch. Um, we read in a home in Rock Ferry. And it's been a task because... Uh, you're there and there's all sorts of alarms going off and noises and you have to fight to get people's attention. We've been doing it for a few years now and finally I think it's become established. People are used to us doing it and people actually look forward to to us coming. And what I try and do with it too is if you can read poetry about the local area, you can then talk about the local area. For example... um, you know, I must go down to the sea again, that one, John yes. Macefield. Well, he went to school in the River Mersey on HMS Conway. And so you can start talking about that. And we had one uh, woman who said, I remember seeing the HMS Conway and the lads in Bedford Road all queuing up, all lining up to march down to the ship. Wow. And so you're sparking those memories. Yes. And so it's all about engaging with people again. Yeah. Now, bearing in mind your control issues, <laughs> how do you feel when other people read your poetry? Oh, that's fascinating. It doesn't happen very often. <laughs> or, or not while I'm in the room. Because normally, if you, yeah. But sometimes I have heard other people read. And I'm, um, it's interesting. Indeed, the first time it happened to me was, uh, am I allowed to mention another radio station? And, Go on, just um, this one. BBC, BBC Radio Merseyside. Never heard of them. Go no, on. No, they're, they're, they're probably... Flash in the pan. Yeah, they won't last. Anyway, uh, Peggy Poole ran a uh, poetry programme and I sent a couple of poems in and this is 1970-something, about 1978-ish, I imagine. So I sent a couple of poems in and it was really odd listening to these... What to me at the time sounded very posh people reading my poetry. Oh, yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and uh, so, I, so it was odd. Um, but no, I quite enjoy it now because I, I like listening to what other people's idea of it is and other people's spin on what you've written. So that's always interesting. Yeah. And I've had a go at writing... I've written a few sketches and that's been interesting. I do have uh, the great unplayed play, which I wrote it's only a short 
to act play um, and take about an hour or so to perform. But the uh, Amdram group I was with when I wrote it kind of fell apart before it got to doing my play. Oh, what a shame. I, I'm not bitter or twisted. No, you you've moved on, haven't you? <laughs> <laughs> right, Kem, what is your final piece of music? My, my final piece of music is Jeff Beck, who is an absolutely wonderful guitarist, with Amelda May, which is an interesting pairing. And Amelda May, I saw her peer head about 18 months ago on the Fesh Festival, and she was, she's really good. Much better live than on record, in my opinion. She's much more rocky, and uh, but very versatile singer. And this is Walking in the Sand.
Kemal, thanks very much for spending time oh, with us this morning. Really appreciated. Now, before we uh, mercilessly cast you away on Hilbury Island, which piece of music would you select to take with you? Oh, that's so hard. Out of all of those, it maybe that last track. Oh, what? yeah, it's got to be Walking in the Sand, hasn't has it? Has to be, doesn't island? it? Of course it has to be. Has to be. And I, I just love, well, I love Jeff Beck's guitar mm. on that. And, uh, yeah. and your luxury item, are you going to stick with the, the audience? I think it will have to be the audience, <laughs> won't it? Because they can sneak other things across to me. <laughs> Thanks very much. They give me a bit, a bit of peace now and again. I'll be quite happy. <laughs> Thanks very much, Kev. Thank you. We're all wave. Web